Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian, joined again by Kevin Olson. What's up, folks? And we are back in person doing another recording for Basin Breakdown for the month of April 2022. If you're new to this podcast, this is our monthly segment where we go back and look at some of the biggest stories across our most major basins inside the U.S. to really look at the biggest happenings domestically. So we'll just get right into it, starting the way we always do with the DJ Niobrera and Peons Basins. Looks like our first story has to do with a little bit of federal land. Northwest Colorado is a well-developed oil and gas extraction site where the Bureau of Land Management will be opening up 5,276 acres of leasable federal land to be developed. The land leases will be auctioned off as usual in mid-June. Although federal land extraction makes up a small portion of overall production within Colorado, leasing more federal land is a sign of support for the industry. The BLM has also increased the royalty rates for production on federal lands from 12.5% to 18.75%, the first increase in decades, and already I believe it was in the Gulf we saw several lease sales canceled because there was a lack of interest primarily due to those new royalty rates, so I wonder what will happen here in Colorado. Well, I think the more important part of this story isn't necessarily the really the royalty rates that are going on here. I think it's more the fact that um, it, we're opening up 5,276 acres to be developed here in Colorado. And I think that's huge. I think that's really just the state putting its support behind the industry, realizing that, look, this is going to create jobs. This is going to create economic growth. This is going to help our taxes. I mean, it's it's all these things that Colorado over the years has really started to realize that the oil and gas industry is a huge support here within our state. So I just, I, I think it's cool to see that, you know, it, it's it's growth and it's development at a time where so many other places are kind of doing the exact opposite. But enough of that, let's talk about Democrats' plan to suspend Colorado's new gas fee until two months after the November election. Governor Jared Polis's primary goal was to reduce the cost of living for Colorado residents in part by cutting vehicle registration fees and delaying the implementation of a gas tax until next year. The cost of a gallon of gas is up over a dollar from prices one year ago, spurring creative means by the government to aid their constituents. Polis has also criticized the oil and gas companies for underutilizing available permits, which if used, could also bring the cost of pumps down. Hey, admirable goal. I would love to see the cost of living go down, but I'm still a bit skeptical. Nevertheless, the EPA moves to declare the front range as a severe air quality violator. Here's why that matters. Those living in Colorado know that Denver has smog issues, something easily evident on morning commutes to and from the city. Nine counties in the front range from Fort Collins all the way down to Castle Rock have been bumped up from serious to severe violators of federal ozone standards by the EPA. If the change in status is approved, it will mean stricter air quality regulations for Colorado companies. One example of increased regulations is gas stations could be required to sell cleaner burning fuel, resulting in even higher gas prices for consumers, and that really was my biggest concern. I mean, uh, most of it stems to just cars, combustion engines, and commuting, right? Well, and, and that's why I think it's interesting that really this is going to come down to Colorado companies because to a certain extent, there's not a whole lot certain companies can do. You know, think of companies that just operate in a building um, and a lot of their stuff is, say, you know, tech or online. There's not a whole lot they can do to really reduce their carbon footprint. Yeah. Sure, maybe an oil and gas operator, but these are areas along the front range in Fort, well, not necessarily the front range of Fort Collins, but Castle Rock, there's not development over there. So I, I am curious. I mean, there is construction over there. So maybe this is something that 
um, you know, construction companies will say, okay, you can only operate large machinery from this hour to this hour or, you know, reduce operating hours of large machinery 20% and use more manpower. Who knows? But I think it is unfortunate that a lot of this is going to be probably kind of passed on to the end consumer, um, kind of going exactly the opposite direction of our previous story where Jerry Polis wants to reduce the cost of gasoline. And, and here we're seeing that, well, there's a good chance it's actually going to go up. Enough about talking about high gas prices, though. Denver's startup project Canary is helping oil and gas companies to reach their environmental, social, and governance ESG goals through emission monitoring systems. Companies like these are becoming increasingly popular in industry to bring oil and gas companies to net zero emissions. Companies with ESG goals are seen by investors as more valuable than their non-ESG counterparts, especially important in the fossil fuel industry that many investors are trying to stay away from. You know, it's interesting to think that there are still non-ESG companies out there. I feel like this is such a hot topic in today's... That it's just got to be baked into everybody's fine text corporate credo, right? Exactly. And the fact that if you aren't really looking at, you know, the environmental social justice of impact of what your company's doing, I think that that kind of speaks to where, you know, the direction that you're going. All right, you're kind of going in the opposite direction as everyone else. So I think it's great that this Project Canary is helping out oil and gas companies reach those ESG goals because there are significantly more impacts for an oil and gas company than kind of like we were just talking about, say, a tech company. Um, But still, either way, I think this is a great movement and hopefully that they can continue um, this goal forward. But enough talking about Colorado. Let's move up north to the Powder River Basin where Wyoming oil and gas jobs are above 8% thousand again as rig counts climb but they're still trailing pre-pandemic levels as of february 2022 wyoming employs 8200 oil and gas workers up from last year's february high of 7300 workers while employment is on the rise again following lows brought on by covid19 it has still not returned to pre-pandemic levels of around 12,000 workers while other industries are either at or above pre-pandemic employment levels the oil and gas industry is lagging behind, even if it is slowly recovering and, you know, building off of this. This is a story that we talked about last week um, with all these lease sales happening again in Wyoming. Um, maybe with more and more activity, I think we're going to continue to see this number rise. Oh, I think so, too. I mean, if you look at the rig count, the total rig count, uh, if you go back to just before the crash, we had a little bit less than 800 rigs. And that dropped down to, um, well, less than 300 after that price crash. But already... Total rig count is back up to 700, so we're less than 100 rigs away from being where we were right before we really saw the worst of it. So it's exciting to think about that. But that's enough about some rigs. Next, we got to talk about underground fuel storage in Wyoming. Wyoming's Department of Environmental Quality, DEQ, monitors and regulates things like underground storage tanks for compliance with environmental standards. Underground storage tanks include those at gas stations and emergency backups for generators. Of all the DEQs across the country, Wyoming boasts the best compliance at 93%, compared to the average national rate at just 57.8%. A high compliance rate means fewer leaks and earlier detection management of leaks that do happen, which ends up saving money and saving the environment. So good on Wyoming for prioritizing fuel storage and doing well at it. That stat to me is just mind-blowing. What, the the high end or the low end? The 57.8 is the average? Both. I mean, <laughs> good on Wyoming. 93% compliance. That's that's awesome. That's great. But the national average at being 57.8, 
Are you kidding me? Yeah, I, it makes you wonder what what is a pass, what is a fail. If it leaks a single drop, is that a fail? Because then maybe the 57.8 makes sense, but I bet you it's just a lot of old infrastructure that's just getting slowly, slowly replaced. And, and maybe, again, another opportunity for, for growth in um, throughout the United States, but great job, Wyoming, keeping that rate up at 93%. And for our last story here in Wyoming, we're going to talk about wind power companies that are being fined millions of dollars after they plead guilty to killing 150 bald eagles. Fossil fuel companies are often made out to be the villains in the story, where renewables are the heroes. But the truth is, both energy sources are guilty of environmental harm. One such example is renewables taking the blame in a recent court case up in Wyoming. ESI Energy was recently fined eight million dollars for pleading guilty to killing several golden eagles they were also responsible for the deaths of over 150 other birds including bald eagles and were tasked with implementing 27 million dollars worth of changes to reduce bird deaths i think i first saw this story on linkedin and of course it was a a big gotcha moment for those in industry dragging this company through the mud but like it says in the article, both energy sources are guilty of environmental harm. Maybe that's a bit aggressive, but all energy sources are going to have their pros, their cons, their positives, their drawbacks. So uh, I suppose we should probably avoid killing the national bird by maybe not putting lots of wind energy in their natural environments. But again, we just have to know what it is, what it isn't, and where each of these systems are appropriate. And it looks like maybe here was not the best place. Exactly. And, and Tavis, I think you hit the nail on the head. When you said that, you know, both are responsible for their harms. Uh, And that's just the way things are going to be. You know, we're moving towards a cleaner, greener energy future. And I think that's fantastic because I think there needs to be diversity in our energy portfolio. Can't just be gas. Can't just be renewables. We're not going to get there. We saw what happened, say, down in Texas, you know, when the power grid failed. Things like that happen. We're seeing what's happening down in California with hydropower just being insufficient with the huge drought that's going on. We need a little bit of both. But... You know, Tavis might have also brought something about that's really interesting here. How about maybe we don't install, you know, um, these really large wind turbines in an area of migration for bald eagles? Uh, But at the same time, maybe we don't um, start drilling in a beautiful, pristine national park, something like that. So there are certainly pros and cons to both. But I think what the important thing is, is um, there's always going to be pros and cons to every situation in which we look at. So we just kind of have to see the bright part in every situation. And just, I have no idea what else to say. No, that's fine. <laughs> I, I've just Googled this as a fun fact. But uh, depending, of course, where on the fan blade you measure it, you can get speeds from 75 miles per hour all the way to 150 miles per hour on those large ones. So the good news is that those eagles probably didn't suffer. And that's the silver lining of this story. But I'm sorry, that's a bad joke. We'll move it on, ironically, to the eagle fur, (laughs) (laughs) where uh, part of ConocoPhillips' plan to double down in the Permian Basin within Texas is to divest their assets elsewhere. Details are still unknown, but the U.S. producer is expected to sell off over $100 million worth of assets in the Eagleford Basin, also located largely in Texas. A large sum of money, to be sure, however, it pales in comparison to Conoco's spending in the last year and a half. Within 18 months, the company has spent $23 billion on assets within the Permian, solidifying their dominant position in the highest producing basin in the country. And, you know, that was probably a good time to spend the money. Oh, absolutely. And it's always unfortunate to see, you know, when a company's really trying to get out of one basin. Um, But at the same time, 
there are times where it truly makes sense. You know, really focus on your core assets, on what you really know. Um, and maybe ConocoPhillips decided, you know, the Eagle Fur just isn't for us. That also means that now there's going to be opportunities for other operators to come and swoop up this acreage. And who knows, maybe they'll be able to squeeze some extra riches out that ConocoPhillips didn't even know they had. But talking about purchasing, Eagleford producer Ranger Oil launches a $100 million share repurchase program. Ranger Oil Corporation, based in Houston, Texas, has operations in the Eagleford Basin in South Texas. The company recently initiated a share buyback program that will run until March of next year. Darren Hank, president and CEO of Ranger, commented, quote, This program is part of our strategy to maximize shareholder value through efficient deployment of our operational cash flow with a focus on risk-adjusted cash-on-cash returns. And this is something we've been harping on for probably half a year at this point. Despite these high commodity prices and things getting better, companies are just looking to pay down their debts, bring more money to their shareholders, and really not spend a lot of money on operational expansion. So nothing crazy, nothing new. Just want to reinforce that idea because it's a very important one and plays heavily into the future implications of domestic energy prices. But next, an unregulated pipeline break in Webb County highlights Texas oil and gas accountability problem. The U.S. has over 400,000 miles of small pipelines used to transport oil and gas all around the country. Most of the large pipelines, such as the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, are well-known and fairly well-regulated, while the smaller ones are often a tad more overlooked. Big Cowboy Pipeline is one such smaller line, oxymoronically, that recently sent around 900 metric tons of methane into the atmosphere in the Eagleford Basin. Lack of stricter regulations and monitoring for smaller pipelines is being brought into question because of the incident, and that sounds fair to me. I agree, and I think this is going to play perfectly into um, the federal um, kind of new regulations that are going to go into emissions requirements, because this is just something that, to be completely honest with you, Tavis, shouldn't be happening. 900 metric tons of methane? Come on, guys. Like, I, I get that it's old equipment. I get that it's going to cost to, you know, be more in compliance. But these are so easy steps to ensure that we have an oil and gas future, you know, down the road. It doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, let's go spend billions just to make a million. It, it's It's more along the lines of, okay, we need to spend our money um, so that we can kind of remain in business. But I just also want to point out that I think it's hilarious that this pipeline is called Big Cowboy Pipeline and it's down in Texas because <laughs> everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> but I think that's everything we have for the Eagleford. We'll circle back to Texas later. Right now, we're going to move it just to the east in Oklahoma, Scoopstack Basins. Capitol Hill lawmakers are meeting with oil and gas companies to figure out how to bring gas prices down. Of course, this is a problem. That we've talked about already, but it's not unique to just one state all over the country and even the world at this point. Devon Energy is one of the more prominent companies that will be in attendance and has stated that increasing domestic production would be the easiest way to decrease the price of gas. A barrel of oil is going for more than $100 right now, which enables more wells to be drilled. However, the price is volatile and who knows if it'll stay north of $100 for more than a few months. Skepticism is the main driver keeping oil producers from ramping up production, and I got to say, this is, I am tired of hearing about how Congress and uh, from a state and federal level is trying to deal with this problem because it always comes down to, oh, there's price gouging. As if these ma and pa people who own the chain, who own the rights to have Exxon Mobil on a sign are taking advantage of their communities. They really aren't. And, and I think that's what people really need to start understanding is, yes, gas prices are high. 
but oil prices are also high. A lot of commodity prices are high. Just things cost money, and it's not like it's a light switch that you can just all of a sudden prices are back to normal. While certainly that would be ideal, and there are certainly steps that can be taken to maybe alleviate some of that pressure, but it's not like overnight someone can just walk out and change the price from 450 to 225 It's just not going to happen. But I do agree that one of the easiest ways to bring down these prices is increasing domestic production. That being said, it's a timely process. Again, you can't drill a well overnight, and you know it's not like gasoline comes out of those things, too. They still have to be refined. They still have to be transported. They still have to get to the end consumer. So I don't really see gas prices moving a whole heck of a lot in the near future, but who knows? Maybe by this time in a few months, we will see a little bit of alleviated prices. Maybe, or maybe this time in a few months, we go, oh man, I miss $7 gasoline. (laughs) (laughs) Next, a bill to support oil and gas industry is approved by the Senate. The Energy Discrimination Elimination Act of 2022, or House Bill 2034, not only has a crazy name, but was approved by the Oklahoma Senate. The bill would help protect the oil and gas industry that has become so vital to the state's economy. House Bill 2034 will require the state to sell off any assets within finance companies that boycott the energy industry. Oklahoma employs triple the national average of people working in the fossil fuel industry, hence the state's commitment to protecting interests of taxpayers, shareholders, and residents over certain political ideologies. And I don't know how I feel about this. This feels like a very risky bill to implement. I'm typically very big on letting the invisible hand guide the free markets, but this this does seem a bit aggressive, especially the name. I, I agree. I mean, this seems like something where it's it's aggressively supporting the oil and gas industry. Like, all right, if you don't support oil and gas, we're not going to support you. You know, get out of our state. It seems a little extreme. You know, people are allowed to have their opinions. People are allowed to support who they want to support. Um, certainly, of course, you know, Tavis and I here are... It well in support of the oil and gas industry. We see the pros, but we also see the cons. And I think what this bill is neglecting to understand and realize is people's kind of choice, people's opinion of, um, you know, what do I believe in? You know, what do I see the energy future? So again, I'm kind of with you and Tavis, not really sure um, that I really like this bill, but um, it will be interesting to see kind of how this develops and, and what the story kind of unfolds down in Oklahoma. Um, But enough talking about that. Let's talk about how Oklahoma only slightly increased their oil and gas production during the Ukraine war. Days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt wrote to President Joe Biden in hopes of encouraging the administration to embrace domestic production. Again, tying back to our story just a couple minutes ago. Over a month later, the U.S. enforces sanctions on Russian oil, further complicating the oil and thereby energy market. Rig counts within the state and in the nation are on the rise. However, producers are still waiting for federal support and oil price stability before really letting loose. Yeah, many folks realize that as a solution, but unfortunately, like they said, here we are over a month out from that now and haven't seen any changes in policy. But that wraps it up for Scoop Stack in Oklahoma area. Next, we're going to take it to California, which, Kevin, you were just out there, yeah? I was, and let me tell you, it was hot. And I'm sure we will be talking about that news next month as California and Texas struggle with these early heat waves. So be sure to go ahead and frack that follow button on whatever platform you listen to us through so you don't miss that next episode. But for this month's news, a new safety measure added to oil and gas pipelines in the United States, but it won't apply to all pipelines. In 2010, a massive pipeline burst caused a fire that resulted in the deaths of eight people and began the conversation of how pipelines can be made safer. Over a decade later, changes are finally being made. Newly constructed or replaced pipelines will be required to include emergency valves that can quickly shut off the flow of oil 
natural gas, or other hazardous fuels when pipelines rupture. Pipeline companies have resisted the installation of shutoff valves because of the expense of installing them and concerns they could close accidentally and shut off fuel supplies. However, the more stringent regulations for the industry will help save lives and reduce environmental damage. And Kevin, I gotta say, I think we have the technology and the engineers to make this function well. Shut off valves that won't just accidentally close, stop gas deliveries. I understand the concern there, but uh, the more we experience these accidents and mistakes, the more we realize that there is a need to address them. Oh, and I agree. And, and to be completely honest with you, Tavis, it's shocking to me that this took 10 years. I mean, to me, think think about this. Uh, an oil pipeline bursts. Even if there's no you know human casualties, just the environmental cleanup, the loss of product, all that alone, that's going to cost you millions. Lots of money and time. How much are these valves really going to cost you? I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you want this? Because... I mean, okay, when this pipeline also bursts, you still have to shut it in. So then, look, even more production gets backed up. All right, and then now you have to go in and repair it, test it. It's just... Deal with negative PR, even? Exactly. So, and, you know, let's talk about this one. Death of eight people. Do you know how much they probably, that lawsuit cost that company? How about we just Pretty install tiny. these safety valves in these safety measures? To me, this is an absolutely a no-brainer. And like Tavis said, we've got the engineering know-how. We've got the expertise to me, this is ridiculous that it took this long, but I'm glad to see that things are moving forward. Um, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but good on you, California. <laughs> yeah. Up next, California revealed its plan to phase out new gas-powered cars by 2035. 12% of all vehicles sold in California are zero emission, which includes both hybrid and electric vehicles. The California Air Resources Board had made public their ambitious plan to increase the number of zero-emission vehicles on the roads. The plan will require 35% of new vehicles sold in the state by 2026 to be powered by batteries or hydrogen, actually. And by 2036, the plan includes 100% of all new vehicles sold to be zero-emission. While California is the first state to enact such measures, other states like New York, Massachusetts, and North Carolina often follow in its footsteps regarding tailpipe emission proposals. This was a conversation that was started, I think, last year as they look to not only do this residentially, but even look at the ports and see if they cannot electrify more of the vehicles. So really, I'm excited to see how it plays out. 35% in four years sounds super aggressive to me, but hey, it's a case study that we can learn from. Someone's got to do it first to see, well, how well or how poorly it goes. Exactly, and, and I think it is a little bit aggressive. 100% of all new cars by 2036, that's a really, really, really fast timeline, especially when only 12% right now are. And the other thing that I think California needs to take into account is, okay, if I really still want to go get a gas-powered car, let me just fly to a different state, buy it there, and then drive it in. Yeah. I think what they really are going to start needing to do if they really want to implement this is starting to phase out gas stations. I think that's really— I'll force people to go electric. Yeah, and and do I necessarily agree with this policy or this roadmap? Eh, not necessarily, mm -hmm. because, again, people have their choice. You know, would I rather drive an electric car? Would I rather drive, you know, a, a fossil fuel burning car? I still think people should be allowed the choice, um, you know, whether it be economic reasons or, or personal reasons. Um, but again, again— Aggressive, but we'll see where this turns out. Our next story talks about California's gas tax, which is already high, but believe it or not, it could go higher. Californians pay some of the highest prices at the pumps and may be soon paying even more. 
A bill from 2017 requires the gas tax to go up each year to counter inflation. This time around, it will be a three-cent increase. The tax is important because it goes towards funding for roads, bridges, and transportation. During unprecedented high gas prices, lawmakers have come up with three ways to help drivers find relief. One option is to send out $200 checks to each taxpayer who makes less than $125,000 per year. Another one is to send up to $800 to car owners, which we talked about last month. And the final option is to put off the increase until January of next year. So either way, all of these solutions look like they're kicking the can down the road by handing out extra funds or ignoring the problem. So I don't see their gas prices dropping below the $6 average it recently hit anytime soon. Well, and I think even building off this, this kind of builds off our last story. You know, maybe this is how they're planning on implementing this phase out of these fossil fuel powered cars is, okay, we're just going to tax the shit out of gasoline until you quite literally can't afford it. And is that a viable tactic? Sure. Maybe. <laughs> but I think Californians are starting to push back like, hey guys, this is ridiculous. Like I can't afford, um, on my current paycheck, I can't afford rent and groceries and to drive myself to it's just the EV car payment that I have to exactly uh, so it's I think it's interesting that they have this super ambitious and aggressive goal to get to 100% all new vehicles by 2036 um, and maybe a, a way to do that is with this gas tax that they're now kicking the can down the road because people are pissed about it so again interesting to see what California is going to do but another action that California is taking is investigating big oil for allegedly misleading the public on recycling the question I pose to you, how recyclable are plastics? Most people, including myself, would say that a large majority are. But California Attorney General Rob Bonta has a different opinion and has opened an investigation into the country's most productive oil companies for misinformation on this exact topic. Bonta claims that the fossil fuel industry has financially benefited from campaigns that spread the idea that plastics are recyclable and therefore are okay to use. ExxonMobil has since been subpoenaed for information documents and has publicly stated their rejection of such allegations. This seems like such a strange, minute point in the recycling supply chain to target because, what, 10 years ago, our uh, recycling strategy was just to put a lot of these recyclables on a boat and send them to Southeast Asian countries who would recycle them themselves. So I'm not going to say that the system's perfect or broken, but it's a lot of effort going into a really weird place. I just think it's just kind of classic California just wanting to put up a fight to big oil in any way they can. And, uh, you know, they found another opportunity to try and strike a blow. And um, while I will actually be following this story, because now I am curious, how recyclable are plastics? I thought it was kind of one of those things where, you know, you take them, not necessarily melt them down, but, you know, get to reuse them and, and move and use in other products. So I am going to continue to follow this and we'll keep you guys updated on the development of this story. But that is all we've got for California. Always a pleasure to see what's going on there. But next, we take it to the East Coast in the Marcellus Basin, where New York is set to ban natural gas in new buildings, according to some environmental groups. California is often touted as being home to the most stringent environmental standards in the country. Plans to be the first state to ban natural gas in all new buildings has been in the works for some months now, but New York may be the first to actually do it. Governor Kathy Hochul, in her State of the State address in January, committed to, quote, zero on-site greenhouse gas emissions for new construction no later than 2027, end quote. The near-term benefits won't be noticeable due to most emissions coming from older buildings, 
However, the long-term effects will be multiplied as more energy is produced through renewables. And to me, this is a, a little bit mind-boggling because we've got two perspectives. Sure, one for a greener future, and then the one where the EIA, the IEA, many global agencies say, hey, natural gas is going to play a huge part in energy generation and lowering greenhouse gas emissions. So it seems weird to take that strategy completely off the table. I agree. And to me, this is just going to make New York more expensive. I mean, you think about these buildings. I mean, this is exactly what we talked about when San Francisco implemented this about a year ago. How are you going to generate heat in this building? Okay, electricity. Fine. Where are you going to get that electricity? Does that also apply to no natural gas in these new buildings? Does that mean that now all this electricity has to come from renewable sources? Or chances are it's New York. We're probably not going to be able to power all new buildings on solely renewables. So Hey, does that mean then you're going to go to coal, the more destructive? It, to me, it's just, it seems like this is one of those um, kind of uh, showing face uh, things <laughs> where it's just, you know, oh, we're getting rid of the oil and gas industry when the reality becomes, no, we still need this. You know, how about let's take steps to move away from other sources, you know, say coal and invest more in renewables, but don't completely leave a, a really great clean source of energy in the rear view. I just, I think it's a foolish tactic and I think it's going to come back to haunt them in the end. Mm -hmm. But what is not going to be haunting in the Marcellus is bidding on well plugging contracts. Pennsylvania has 26,000 orphaned oil and gas wells, which all need to be plugged and abandoned properly. Current law favors giving the plugging and abandoned contracts to out-of-state companies, but however, new legislation will amend the current law to provide well-plugging contracts to Pennsylvania companies. House Bill 2528 will bring jobs to Pennsylvania by allowing any Pennsylvania company, regardless of size, to bid for a contract. Money to pay companies for plugging the wells will come from federal funds totaling $400 million for the state. Hey, that's a good chunk of money to get started. I don't think it's going to take care of all of the 26,000, but this is a region that so desperately needs these wells to be abandoned. It is home to the very birth of the American oil and gas industry, and I can only imagine some of the crazy stuff they'll be dealing with. But exciting, and I think a great solution, and I'm excited to see who can take advantage of this program and make a little cash. But that's enough for the Marcellus. We're going to bounce it back out west to North Dakota in the Bakken where Bitcoin miner Crusoe is mostly not affected by the North Dakota oil site explosion. Now, while there aren't a ton of details, there was an explosion, and Crusoe Energy is a company that has been recognized by the World's Bank Global Gas Flaring Reduction Initiative report for its innovative use of wasted flare gas from oil and gas operations. They operate in several states, including North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, with various hydrocarbon-producing facilities, using their gas to run Bitcoin mining machines. Now, this recent explosion at a facility in North Dakota was cause for concern among investors. However, Crusoe says their infrastructure on site is unaffected and will run as usual. So, like I said, not a ton of information, but what you do need to know is that it was not Crusoe's fault. Fortunately, their little trailer of rigs was far enough away doing the Bitcoin mining that it was not damaged. So, good for them because I can see how an accident like this could have scared investors, especially if several hundreds of thousands of dollars of infrastructure was destroyed immediately and they had nothing to show for it. So good for them for getting through this. And Hess is also getting through this by adding Bakken rigs to boost domestic oil supply. In a world where demand for oil is high, but many producers are hesitant to ramp up production, not many rigs are being added, especially in basins such as the Bakken. Hess, on the other hand, is adding another rig to their current four-count setup in the basin. 
Hess CEO John Hess has stated that the company's main goal is to return most of their annual free cash flow to shareholders, followed by strengthening their balance sheets, and finally adding a rig to the Bakken to increase production. The current strength of the global oil market should allow them to add a new rig by the end of the year. Next, bad weather cuts North Dakota's oil output 80%, and fixing it will take days. As states try to increase production in the face of skyrocketing oil prices to bring down gas prices, some have run into roadblocks. One such roadblock is poor weather. North Dakota is the third most productive oil and gas producing state in the country, but also experiences bitter cold winter weather. A recent storm in the state knocked out 80% of all oil and gas operations for a few days, which resulted in the loss of several million barrels of oil. The winter storm causes issues with ice accumulation on rigs, blocked roads, damage to electrical infrastructure, all kinds of stuff. Producers are actively looking for ways to prepare for similar events to ensure continuous supply of hydrocarbons to downstream facilities, and this is just one of those events you can't really plan for. Exactly. It's kind of like you said. It's Mother Nature. There's not a whole lot we can do other than, you know, try and be better prepared for the future. But let's talk about our final story where two recent spills occurred in western North Dakota. The North Dakota Oil and Gas Division has reported two weather-related spills in the state's largest basin of the Bakken, one of which was caused by a fire and was followed by the release of 2,400 barrels of produced water and 50 barrels of crude oil. The other was caused by a valve failure that resulted in 400 barrels of oil being leaked. KFYR reported that the spills were contained on site and cleanup is underway. And this episode's getting real long, so we're going to take it back to Texas in the Permian, our last basin, where the Permian is poised for a surge in production. The merger and acquisition frenzy in the Permian is still very much alive, fueled by the sustained $100 plus price of a barrel of oil. One of the larger deals was made by Earthstone Energy for $638 million worth of assets from Bighorn Permian Resources. Earthstone Chief Executive Officer Robert Anderson commented on the purchase, quote, The Bighorn deal was intended to increase cash flow to the company while growing its presence in the Permian Basin, end quote. The longer oil stays above $100, the more comfortable producers are with making big purchases and adding rigs to their portfolios, and hey, I don't think this is crazy news to anyone out there. No, certainly not. Let's just hope that, you know, after that they've, you know, attained these, that they're actually going to start producing them, so hopefully, you know, we can knock those numbers back up. Up next, Biden's offer of oil leases is not enough to end the legal challenges. After months of waiting on a final court decision, the Biden administration will once again resume leases on federal land for oil and gas ventures. Despite this, Permian Energy companies are still reluctant to get back into business as there's no solid plan for the future. Only 80% of the originally proposed leases will be resumed, and the volatility of these leases is still an issue for those wanting to create a solid expansion plan for their company. The Permian has received nearly 500 federal land permits in fiscal year 2022, but not much is being done with them due to the uncertainty of the future. Next, can we decarbonize shale gas in the Permian Basin? The shift towards a greener fuel is inevitable and widely agreed upon. Exactly how it's done is an entirely different question and one that is hotly debated. A recent study in the Permian Basin measured the greenhouse gas emissions of several types of waste utilized natural gas and natural gas liquids in the production of hydrogen as a fuel source. Hydrogen has a much lower carbon intensity than, say, gasoline, and when burned, produces only water and energy. Although producing the hydrogen requires using NGLs, it is still a much greener alternative than using fossil fuels such as oil and its derivatives, and hey, 
great. Let's broaden that portfolio. Love to see a story like this. I think this is pretty cool because we're still using the energy of the past to create the energy of the future. I think this is, it's almost like it's a bridge fuel. Um, and while maybe the technology for these hydrogen fuel cells maybe aren't quite there just yet, it's kind of still more of a futuristic technology. It's not really affordable to be, you know, everywhere right now. I think it's cool that, you know, we have this plethora of natural gas and NGLs that we can use to make this new hydrogen fuel um, to kind of coast into that green future. So I think it's great that we're using the past to kind of fuel the future. Our final story, let's talk about ExxonMobil taking the top score for its natural gas in the U.S. Permian Basin. As climate concerns become more and more important for consumers, energy companies are making the necessary changes to not only get an edge on the market, but to stay in business. ExxonMobil's way of doing so is by producing certified natural gas. When a company can sell natural gas that has been certified as being handled in an environmentally friendly way, it becomes more desirable for consumers, one such being Excel Energy. The market for natural gas is changing, and companies that go through the certification process are leading the way. I think that's that's everything, right, Kevin? That is everything. Another fun episode in the books. And boy, did it get long. You won't hear from us for another month, I promise. But if you miss us before then, go ahead and go to www rarepetro.com where you can find all of our other content that includes video podcasts audio podcasts like the one you're listening to now written periodicals the whole shebang there's something for everybody go there check it out but like i said go ahead and frack that follow button i'll stop self-promoting because this has gone on long enough already this has been tavis killian and kevin olson and until we see you next time take care everybody 